Welcome back, everyone, to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today's episode is the third and final edition of my three-part miniseries on the history of laparoscopy. In this one, we'll explore one of the current directions of minimally invasive surgery and learn about the history of robots in the operating room. And, of course, ponder the future of robotics on this episode of Legends of Surgery. So, as always, let's start by clearing up some terms and definitions. We've been talking about laparoscopy in this series, but an even broader term we could use is minimally invasive surgery, first coined by Dr. John E.A. Wickham in 1984. Wickham is considered by some as the father of robotic surgery, pushing the use of robots earlier than most, including the ProBot, which was an autonomous machine for removing prostate tissue. We'll get back to that. Minimally invasive surgery as a concept means to minimize surgical incisions to reduce trauma to the body and therefore reduce the patient's pain and suffering. I'm making this distinction because robotics and surgery are not limited to intra-abdominal applications, as is laparoscopy, as we'll see. And before we delve into robotics, I would be remiss to not mention a few other interesting current directions of minimally invasive surgery. The first is single-port laparoscopic surgery. This is where a single incision through the umbilicus, or belly button, is used to access the abdominal cavity. I should mention that most regular laparoscopic procedures use at least two or three incisions in different locations on the abdomen and sometimes more. The neat thing here is that more than one instrument can be used through a single port because of articulation, meaning the instruments have joints, and can bend and rotate inside the abdomen, and so can triangulate within the operative field. A picture paints a thousand words, so I've posted a video on Facebook. Check it out, or just search single port laparoscopy on YouTube. Another technique of interest to surgeons is called NOTES, an acronym for Natural Orifice Transluminal Endoscopic Surgery. This is true scarless surgery. As abdominal operations are approached by entering a natural orifice like the mouth, vagina, or anus with an endoscope and then making internal incisions through the stomach, vagina, or colon to enter the abdomen or pelvis to perform surgery. It's still early days and most work is considered experimental, but there have been a few examples of clinical application, such as transgastric cholecystectomy, meaning taking the gallbladder out through the stomach, transoral thyroidectomy, taking the thyroid gland out through the mouth, and a number of types of surgery through the vagina. Dr. Zorn of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, has performed a series of transvaginal cholecystectomies, and in late 2008, surgeons at Johns Hopkins removed a healthy donor kidney from a woman through the vagina. Amazing. Okay, so let's refocus here and talk about robots. So where does the word robot come from? It was first coined in 1921 by the Czech writer Karel Kapak in his play Rossum's Universal Robots. The root word is robota, Czech for, and depending on the source, either work, forced labor, chore, or slave. You get the idea. Weirdly enough, the play was about machines created to replace repetitious and mundane human tasks. Fair enough. But the creations gradually became more powerful and independent, eventually turning on their human masters once they decided that humankind was a nuisance. Yikes. Sounds like he predicted the plot to the Terminator about 63 years early, but his intent was to create a satirical work protesting the industrialization of Europe. So what exactly is a robot? Well, it depends on who you ask, but a simple way to think of it is a machine capable of carrying out specific complex series of actions automatically, according to a fixed or modifiable program. And this question of autonomy, meaning its ability to act independently, lies at the heart of the concept of a robot. As we'll see, the surgical robots that exist now really don't meet this definition, and are better described as instrument handling systems, which are master-slave systems 
that do not perform tasks automatically, but obey the voice or hand commands of the surgeon. But calling them robots sounds cooler. This naturally leads to the idea of artificial intelligence, which is the simulation of human intelligence by a computer. This would lead to a futuristic surgical robot that could operate independently without input from a human. But we'll talk more about that at the end. I just wanted to introduce the idea of artificial intelligence, and on a side note mention the concept of the singularity. If you've not heard of this, sometimes referred to as the technological singularity, it's the hypothesis that the invention of artificial superintelligence will abruptly trigger runaway technological growth as the computers can enter endless cycles of self-improvement and surpass human intelligence. So the movie The Terminator 2 predicts this in frightening fashion. As a safeguard against the coming robot revolution, to impose order on the free will of robots, the science fiction author Isaac Asimov created the three rules of robotics. One, a robot may not injure a human being or through an action allow one to come to harm. Two, a robot must obey all orders given to it from humans, except where such orders would contradict the first law. And three, a robot must protect its own existence, except when to do so would contradict the first law or the second law. Okay, wow, that was a serious tangent. Let's get back to surgical robots. So the first question is, why do we need them? Isn't laparoscopic surgery good enough? Well, some of the limitations of laparoscopic surgery include the extensive training required to become proficient in even the most basic procedures, loss of wrist articulation, poor touch feedback, loss of three-dimensional vision, the fulcrum effect where the instruments move on a fixed point, meaning the port, which causes limited degrees of motion and accentuates tremor, and the poor ergonomics, as any medical student that's driven a camera in a laparoscopic case can attest to. In fact, some have called laparoscopic surgery a transitional technology between open and robotic surgery. So what does a robot offer? The interface between the surgeon and the patient becomes electromechanical and computerized, so the surgical procedure and imaging are digitized. This allows for modification of movements, increased precision, and removal of tremor. However, as I mentioned, surgical robots cannot be currently programmed to perform an operation autonomously, so considerable human input and guidance are needed, unlike the robots used industrially, say, to build cars which repeat a very specific motion independently. Surgical robots for now are used to extend and enhance human capabilities. So let's talk a bit about the early robots in surgery and the interesting role some government agencies played in their development before getting to some of the systems used today. Now obviously a fixed anatomical landmark, such as seen in neurosurgery and orthopedics, unlike the ever-moving abdominal organs, would be a logical place to start. Now the world's first surgical robot was the Arthrobot, which was developed and first used in Vancouver, BC, Canada in 1983. This was created by Dr. James McEwen and Jeff Achenluck, not sure if I'm saying that right, in collaboration with orthopedic surgeon Dr. Brian Day. This was a robot that positions the patient's limb during surgery by voice command. There's a great video on YouTube, I'll post it on Facebook. Now in 1985, Dr. Yik San Kwa, Director of Research in the Radiology Department at Long Beach Memorial Medical Center, started with a commercially available system known as Puma, programmable, universal machine for assembly, which was used in industries like car manufacturing. Basically, it was attached to the patient's head by a stereotactic frame and used CT scans to guide the probe to the target lesion. The surgeon could change position to avoid hitting blood vessels and critical structures, kind of important in neurosurgery especially. So to test the system, they had the robot locate copper-coated BBs placed inside watermelons, and it was able to perform the task with a 1mm error for each spherical pellet retrieved. And that seems pretty good. John Wickham, the urologist I mentioned earlier as the person that coined the term minimally invasive surgery, developed a robot in 1988 at Imperial College of London, England, 
to assist in a transurethrosection of prostate or TERP. This is a procedure whereby an enlarged prostate is removed through instruments placed in the urethra. But this operation requires many repetitive movements in an uncomfortable position. And so, again using the Puma system as no one was making robots for surgery yet, they created a prototype and practiced initial resections on potatoes. No word as to whether they ate them after. The robot was able to make conical resections within 1.5 millimeter of specifications, comparable to that of a human surgeon. So they called it the ProBot, and first used it in 1991 on a human patient. Now, although it worked, the idea of letting the robot act on its own, autonomously, made doctors uncomfortable, and the project shut down when the funding ran out. There are other examples of these early renditions of surgical robots, but let's get to the story of how the current robots developed. In the 1980s, researchers at NASA's Ames Research Center, specifically virtual reality pioneer Scott Fisher, developed the first head-mounted display, which immersed the viewer in a 3D environment, creating the concept of telepresence, as in being virtually present, but actually being far away. Now, separately, the plastic surgeon Joseph Rosen, along with engineer Phil Green, developed a system of robotic telemanipulation for microsurgery at Stanford Research Institute, building a prototype that could be used to microsuture blood vessels and nerves in the hand with funding from the NIH, the National Institute of Health. It was the combining of these two ideas that allowed for the creation of remote surgery, which piqued the interest of the U.S. Army. Dr. Richard Satava, a general surgeon in the U.S. Army, joined the development team. By the early 1990s, they were able to demonstrate a bowel anastomosis, which is sewing together two ends of bowel, done with a robot remotely. Satava became the program manager for advanced biomedical technologies at DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, in charge of developing robotic systems for performing open surgery on wounded soldiers during transport to a MASH unit, Mobile Advanced Surgical Hospital. As many as 90% of deaths on the battlefield occur before transport, usually due to hemorrhage, so the hope is that a robot controlled by a surgeon miles away from the combat zone could be used to perform initial wound treatments and slow or stop blood loss. Dr. Frederick Mole, a surgical resident turned entrepreneur, founded Intuitive Surgical in 1995, which would use this technology to eventually develop the Da Vinci robot, and we'll come back to that. But let's step back to 1993 to cover the first application of robotics in abdominal surgery. Yulin Wang developed the first FDA, that's the Food and Drug Administration, approved robotic device for use in general surgery called ESOP, short for Automated Endoscopic System for Optimal Positioning. For those listening, that are ancient Greek history fans, you may recognize the name. Aesop was a storyteller credited with a number of fables often involving animals. Some common examples include the ant and the grasshopper, the boy who cried wolf, and the tortoise and the hare. Anyways, the original research done for Aesop was partially funded by NASA in the hope that the technology might be applicable to the space shuttle, doing tasks that are difficult to reach, dangerous, or delicate. The system consists of a table-mounted articulating arm that was used to control the movements of the camera during laparoscopic surgery. It was originally manipulated by hand or foot controls, but the later version was capable of utilizing voice commands and incorporated voice control of the endoscope and OR room lights. This allowed for stability of the image, avoided needless accidental movements of the endoscope, and reduced the medical personnel needed in the OR. Basically, the surgeon would still be doing the surgery laparoscopically, with ESOP replacing and improving upon the assistant, but it was the first step in introducing robotics into the operating room. In 1995, the prototype of the zoo system was demonstrated, which represented the first real step towards the modern concept of robotically-assisted laparoscopic surgery. This was a platform that allowed the surgeon to control a robotic device that was docked to the patient remotely from a console, meaning the surgeon is not scrubbed in and does not have physical contact with the patient. By physically separating the two systems, the surgeon has greater dexterity. 
a very quick tangent on the word dexterity. It comes from the Latin word dexter, meaning right. So ambidextrous actually means right-handed on both sides, as ambi means both. And do you know what the Latin word for left-handed is? It's sinister. For those who are familiar with the short forms used in ophthalmology, you may be familiar with OD and OS, used to signify the right and left eyes. It stands for oculus dexter and oculus sinister. Now, as a left-handed person, I do find this mildly offensive. And today, August 13th, is left-handers day. For real. Okay, back to our story. The Zeus robotic system had a camera arm that was voice-controlled, which was the ESOP system, along with two other operating arms that could hold a variety of instruments and were telemanipulated with joysticks from the surgical console, proving that video games can be considered surgical skill development training. The software that interfaced the surgeon console with the robotic arms allowed tremor filtration and motion scaling by a factor of 2 to 10, and the surgical field could be visualized through the regular 2D screen or through polarized glasses which allowed for 3D images. Zeus was first used in a full laparoscopic procedure in 1998 at the Cleveland Clinic for fallopian tube reanastomosis, which is reconnecting the tubes that lead from the ovaries to the uterus, and for a coronary bypass by Dr. Reichensperner in Munich, Germany in 1999. Now, typically the two parts, meaning the robot on the patient and the console for the surgeon, are connected by wires over a short distance with the surgeon in the same room. But in 2001, Dr. Jacques Marisco used the Zeus system to perform a robot-assisted cholecystectomy on a patient in Strasbourg, France, 6,200 kilometers, or just under 4,000 miles for my American friends, away from the surgeon in New York. This was dubbed Operation Lindbergh in reference to the first transatlantic flight by American aviator Charles Lindbergh in 1927 aboard his plane, the Spirit of St. Louis, which also played a role in my 20th podcast on Alexis Carell. Have a listen if you haven't already. This was an impressive demonstration of telepresence in surgery, with potential applications for battlefields, global surgery, and even space. This happened on September 7, 2001, and was overshadowed by the tragic events that followed four days later. Now, telesurgery is really only limited by speed of data transfer, as there can't be a perceivable delay in actions in the image. The Zeus robot is no longer available, as the company that made it merged with the one that makes our next robot, the Da Vinci. As I mentioned earlier, Da Vinci was born out of the projects for NASA and the U.S. Army. Like Zeus, this is considered a comprehensive, master-slave surgical robotic system, with multiple arms controlled remotely at a console by the surgeon. Now, there are some technical differences with Zeus, but I won't get into them. I'll post some videos on Facebook to show how these systems look. Now, there is an interesting historical reason for choosing the name Da Vinci. Apparently, Leonardo Da Vinci had design notes for a robot and sketchbooks, which were rediscovered in the 1950s. The story is that he displayed this machine, a robotic knight, at the court of Milan in 1495. It worked by a series of pulleys and cables and could sit, stand, raise its visor, and even maneuver its arms. And here's the best part. The robot has been built using the sketches, and it is fully functional. The Da Vinci surgical system was first used clinically in 1997 in Brussels, Belgium, to perform a laparoscopic cholecystectomy by Dr. Guy Cadier. Now, December 1998 was the first commercial version of the Da Vinci system delivered to the Leipzig University Heart Center in Germany, and in 2000 it received FDA approval in the U.S. It has been approved for use in a large variety of procedures in urology, general surgery, gynecology, thoracic surgery, and cardiac surgery. Later models increase the number of arms to four and allow for a second console which permits coaching by a mentor, increasing the safety during learning curve. But what we haven't yet discussed is the benefit to the patient. What seems intuitively like an improvement over laparoscopy has not been borne out in the literature yet. Is this due to a lack of expertise or experience? Robots have been in the OR for a while now, and in the U.S. at least, the numbers continue to rise, 
with 140,000 procedures having been done with a robot in 2015. The cost is significant too, with a single robot costing over a million dollars, not to mention the annual upkeep and equipment costs in the tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars. So if patient outcomes are essentially equivalent between robots and laparoscopy, is it ethical to continue from a resource management perspective? Is this simply a case of excellent marketing to patients and surgeons pushing us to adopt an unproven technology? Or are we simply at the early stages of a new paradigm shift within surgery, with the benefits not yet realized until the design and capabilities improve? We've certainly seen our share of pioneering surgeons that have pushed new ideas, receiving significant criticism, and ultimately being proved correct. So maybe this is the case here. Regardless, the horses are out of the barn now, with robots likely here to stay. So what direction will the future take us? Without a doubt, the robots themselves will continue to improve, with new robots entering the market, including ones that utilize the concept of a single port access, as mentioned at the beginning, and combining it with robots. Could we see smaller, even disposable, special-purpose robots like so many other technologies in the operating room? Maybe even nanobots, tiny robots that could enter the body or even the bloodstream to target a lesion. Think of the movie Inner Space. Now, FYI, nanotechnology is the material science of objects under 100 nanometers in size. For perspective, a human hair is around 100,000 nanometers wide. Now, finally, as we mentioned at the beginning, the future of robotics may be complete automation approaching artificial intelligence. Could robots take over completely the role of the surgeon? It's an intriguing and almost frightening idea. If it is possible, and I think that day is a long way off, we would be losing something in ourselves, and in our interactions with each other, as healing another person or being healed by someone is a uniquely human experience, and one that cannot be easily replicated. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. In the next episode, we'll change directions and look at a surgeon who spent most of her life dedicated to global surgery, despite the many risks to her safety, and which eventually cost her her life. An amazing story of dedication. Now please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes, and as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.